is Amber O'Neill Johnston, author of A Place to Belong and a book that celebrates diversity and kinship in the home and beyond. Uh, Amber, what's the, what, what drew you to write about this? The book about what I would it be fair to say, understanding diversity? I think it's more about creating a home that celebrates diversity. So, mm -hmm, so like the idea that your children, whoever they may be and whatever they, however they may present in this world, feel known and appreciated and kind of the child walks away feeling like my parents see me and they really like what they see. And so do others. And at the same time, recognizing the need for our children to reach out to our towards other people who are similar and people who are different. So it's just kind of the idea that instead of being colorblind or saying, Shh, you know, shushing them every time they have an observation about someone, but instead we're like, yeah, he, his skin is different than yours. Isn't that really cool? Or yeah, I noticed your, your hair is, is this way and hers is that way. And, and I think it's really neat, you know, so it's turning that idea of being colorblind on its head um, to take away some of the stigma and secrecy around it. And, and that's a natural thing for kids, isn't it? I mean, the the idea of, oh, well, look at this and look at that. I mean, just as they observe things in the world at large. It is. And, and I think that if we remove our own personal adult lens and bias from it that makes us feel nervous when kids say things like that, it's, it's very natural. And I think that instead of teaching our kids that those feelings or thoughts or observations are wrong, I think we should just, you know, accept them, embrace them and say, yeah, but it's the judgment that comes along with the observations that makes them ugly. And our children don't naturally have those judgments. Very good. We're talking with Amber O'Neill Johnston, author of A Place to Belong. And you offer in this book, I think, a, just a, a large amount of information and sort of a checklist on things to do. Is it with the kids or to bring up in the home? Could you go over that a little bit? Yeah, so I start the book with questions that parents need to ask themselves, because before we can invite our children and say, you can talk to me about anything, and they're definitely going to come with what I call tough table topics, uh, we have to be somewhat familiar about our own thoughts on these things. What do we think about what's happening in society, or what do we think about who we are as people, or where you came from, your family of origin, your people, your community? So in the beginning, it's kind of the parents' homework, and then the rest of the the book is really about what we can do with our children as we invite them to have a seat at a table where they will feel the ultimate sense of belonging. Uh, Amber, I'm wondering, you know, Peoria, where I'm calling you from, uh, is a city that uh, has a very large uh, African-American population, which in the city's school system is dominant, um, and yet are all around it the small towns surrounding Peoria um, are basically, uh, I won't say all white, but, but heavily white schools. What, 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 do you, what do you make of that as you go around the country? I don't think that's an unusual situation. It's, it's come to pass. Um, so how do we deal with that? And how do we kind of bring that forward to a positive yeah, I think I'm very familiar. I'm actually from Illinois. And so in those, you know, communities that you're mentioning further out from the city, I was the little black child sitting in those all white classrooms. And I know what that feels like. But I think that for uh, one thing that I talk about that I think is a big strategy related to school is this idea of having 
a, a, a bookshelf full of mirrors and windows or shelves full of mirrors and windows for class libraries and school libraries and home libraries. And by mirrors and windows, I mean books where children can see themselves and their families and their communities represented in a familiar way and books where they can learn about other people. Because as you just mentioned, all of our children don't always have the opportunity to interact with uh, people who are different than them in, in a substantial way. And then I think, you know, on a broader scale that we need to do something um, better for, for our children in the school systems to be able to have an opportunity to experience what an inclusive and diverse and vibrant classroom would be. How did, you, know, you know, that's an interesting point. Uh, let's just say a community reached out to you, a, a school system, and said, uh, you know, we have 94%, 95% white or, or whatever it is, but we want to do something about that. You know, what, what do you suggest? I mean, because, I mean, in terms of giving them, the students, I mean, uh, an idea of an inclusive society. Well, I think one thing that I did bring up to one school was the idea of having a sister school. And uh, um, right. We're homeschoolers, but we have a sister homeschool group and we do things together and we plan things together and the children experience and spend time together. And so while we have our own separate groups, I mean, because there are broader issues, right, about how we choose which kids go to which schools and which neighborhoods people live in communities, those are kind of all almost bigger for me than I can even address here. But on a very easy level, having a sister school where these two schools intentionally choose to be together and to do things together so that their students do get that experience, I think is the easiest thing. It's a low hanging fruit, at least in my opinion. Do you know of any examples of that? No, I don't like not in, in school world, but I feel like since I see it play out in homeschool world, I don't see why it couldn't be like that. Oh you yeah. Know? Because yeah, I'm thinking of sister cities, you know, which yes. is, uh, you know, been widely used for some time. I think that's a, that's a great idea. Well, we'll have to see if we can pursue that, uh, at least bring it up and, right. and see what people want to do with it. You talk about in your book, and we're talking with Amber O'Neill Johnston about A Place to Belong, a new book that celebrates diversity in the home and beyond, um, hard, teaching hard history in, in an age-appropriate way. Uh, can you uh, explore that a little bit? Yeah, I think that so many adults want to protect our children from the tragedy and trauma that can be found in our country's history and the history of every country across the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the wrong approach. Um, our children are so resilient and they respond very positively to storytelling. And there's no better story than the epic story of man. And so I think that rather than assuming that our kids don't need these stories or don't want to hear them, I think we just need to focus more on how we deliver it. And I compare it to like the study of math. You don't wait until your child's a junior or senior in high school and then just start with calculus. That's not how we do it. <laughs> What we do is thank we goodness. I'm thinking yes, about right. It, it doesn't go well. It doesn't even sound oh, right. Boy. Well, I feel I like a lot of times we do that with history, though. We think, well, we'll let them get the hard stuff in college or when they're older. But I think that if we start just like we do with math, with our little sums in the beginning and drip drop, and you're moving on to multiplication and division and fractions and decimals and pre-algebra, algebra and geometry and trigonometry. And little by little, as you grow, we unfold more and more and more of the story. I think that history should be approached in the same way. 
from the very beginning, they should be hearing these stories, but they don't need to hear everything that we know at age five. We just drip it and drip it and grow it and let them let more and more of the story unfold over time. And that way they never get to this point of shock. I got to a point of shock. There, there are things, so many things I never even knew that it happened or occurred until I was an adult. And quite honestly, until I started teaching my own children and had to learn the material. And I was flabbergasted at what I didn't know. And it hurt in a lot of ways. I think that we could avoid that with our children. They can handle so much. And I also think that alongside the hard history I talk about in the book, our need to balance the bitter with the sweet. You know, we think of history in our country, the first thing everybody goes to is slavery. And yes, that's important. Our kids definitely need to know that. But what about music and art and food and feasting and poetry and 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 the idea of the land and how the land came to be and the different people and all of the stories that make up our country and who we are as a people and as individuals. It's slavery is part of it, but that's not the story of my people or or of our country as Americans. That's not our only story. Um, so I think that's important to bring up as well. Very good. We're talking with Amber O'Neill Johnston, author of A Place to Belong, which is a book that uh, is really kind of a handy little, uh, I don't say little, handy guidebook uh, for, for families uh, to, to use. When you when you wrote this, Amber, what, uh, what was on your mind as far as the questions that would be asked by parents, um, you know, when, once they look at this, the, the very fact that they're interested in the subject, obviously, is, is a good thing. But what kind of questions, maybe you've heard some already, uh, what questions have you gotten back uh, after this, you know, on a place to belong? Well, one of the questions I get is, who who are you speaking to? Who is this book for? So um, yeah. people want to know, uh, especially parents, are you talking directly to parents of color? Or are you talking to white parents? And I think that I can say with absolute certainty and uniquely that I'm speaking to both. And mm -hmm. I started that way intentionally from the very beginning. So I think there are chapters and portions of the book where white parents will know that, that I'm talking to them, namely because I say I'm talking to them. And um, hello, that, white people. <laughs> yes. So I call them to the table. And, and then there are other portions of the book where they will get to listen in on a conversation that a parent of color is having with other parents of color and vice versa. So I, I, I want the very, the very fabric of the book. I wanted the fabric of the book to mirror what I'm talking about in the book. And that is let's come together. Together. Like it's so good to, to appreciate who you are and your, you know, where you come from, your culture, your ethnicity, your background, um, whatever that may be. But at the same time, we can't leave it there in these separate silos. We are called to do life together. And I wanted the book to reflect that. That's a, a good point. A Place to Belong is the book uh, with Amber O'Neill Johnson. The, uh, what's the follow up here? Because uh, Amber, I'm, I'm sure you're young and, and you're, you're probably working all the time, writing, getting input. What's, what's your next project? Do you have one yet? Well, right now is that um, I, I'm trying to develop the resources that parents need when they're like, okay, Amber, I'm on board with all the things you're talking about, but how do I do that? And sometimes um, the things that need, that families need 
just don't exist. And so I spend a lot of my time um, pulling together book lists and video recommendations and information and articles and all of that onto my website, heritagemom.com to kind of make it a one-stop shop for parents who are on board with what I'm talking about, but aren't sure how to get started. Heritagemom.com. That's the website of Amber has. Well, what did, what did impact do you feel that COVID had um, on the, on the educational, on the education of our kids? Let's just put it that way. And a very broad side. What's, what's your take on that now that hopefully we're on the, you know, moving away part of it? Yeah, I think that, you know, obviously there was, it was traumatic for, for mm -hmm. the world and it was hard for children to just walk away from their teachers and be at home and, and things were turned upside down and, and everyone struggled. Our communities struggled, our families and, and children, but there were some silver linings. And I think one of the biggest ones is when, when parents brought their children home, they got a chance to be intimately involved in what their children were learning and studying and how their children best learned and they were having conversations that they hadn't had before. The pace of life, life slowed way, way down. And what I've heard from most parents is they don't want to go back to the way things were. A lot of them do want to put their kids back in school. That's not what I mean, but to the frantic pace of life and the lack of depth of the conversations that they have with their kids over their lessons and the things that they're reading and doing. And so to me, I feel like the one blessing that COVID gave us was connection and time. Um, do you think that the online learning got a bad rap? In other words, I, I, I guess it depends on what you read or what you hear, but there seems to be, you know, from what I little I've learned, just, you know, folks are, oh, God, thank God we're back in class because that didn't work. Uh, but what do you think? Was, was there some elements of the online side that uh, could maintain, as you say, could, should continue? Well, I think that it wasn't a fair evaluation in a lot of ways. It wasn't a fair evaluation of our teachers or of our parents um, because we were thrown into the fire. Everyone right. just had to, you know, do, there was no advanced planning. Things were disorganized. It was, a, a, it was a mess. And I think that even throughout all of that, that our children showed how resilient they are. A lot of families have chosen to keep their kids at home, um, even despite the schools opening back up. And for various reasons, some of them have learned things and like, oh, I don't want my kid to be in the school. But what I hear more is I loved having them home. And I think that was a story that didn't get picked up on the news nearly as much as the parents who were frantically, you know, wanting their kids to get back out of the house. So uh, I think that there are, uh, like with anything, there are people who learned that they thrive in that environment. And there are people who were like, I never want to experience this ever again in life. You make a good point there, because I think, again, from the small sample I've seen, you really have to hand it to a lot of the teachers that you know, got, as you say, got thrown into something without a lot of planning, really pulled it off in many cases, or at least did as best they could under very trying circumstances. That, that's a great point. Well, Amber, we, we've got to roll out of here. Uh, let's remind folks again, the book is A Place to Belong. Uh, the website is heritagemom.com. Uh, Amber, I'm going to work on this uh, sister school thing for you over here in Peoria, because I think that that needs to be brought up. I think it's a great idea and uh, we should uh, give it some, give it some play. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you championing that. I'm going to be keeping my eye out on the community. All right. <laughs> we'll send you a note to Heritage Mob. How's that? <laughs>
Sounds good to me. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye.